Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, well, if you haven't already, turn to Psalm 30. And so I know you did Psalm 31 last week, but we're rewinding to the one we didn't catch yet, so Psalm 30. Uh, And the inscription reads, it's a song, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. So that's very interesting, as we'll explain in a little bit. But taking the time to read it, David said, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit, down to Sheol. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And here's a great verse. Look at it. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Isn't that great that he disciplines, but his heart is to you know, get to the other side of the discipline and show us his favor and the grace that he has in his life. Sounds a lot like a heavenly father to me. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And some of you have experienced that in a very personal and real way. Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 30. All right. Well, the heading lets us know uh, that it's a psalm, and it looks like it's of David also, like many of the other ones in this first book, Psalm 1 through 41, and all but a couple are ascribed to David. But it also says that David wrote it, or it was written as a song for the dedication of the house of David. So we talked about God's house this morning. We know David had the heart to build the house, but the temple didn't get built. That house for God didn't get built until the days of his son Solomon, which we covered uh, this morning. David, though, couldn't wait. I mean, he knew, okay, so God, you won't let me build it, but I'm going to do everything but. You know, I'm going to get everything together and ready and excited. I'm going to get singers planning to sing and uh, this. So he had all kinds of wonderful uh, things that he helped do to get it ready and put his son Solomon, his successor, in a position of success. And one of the things he did to get him ready was to write some worship songs to be sung there and on the way there and all those different things. And I think of uh, stories of people who are dying uh, and they'll write letters to be read by their children or grandchildren for key events for years to come, for graduation days, for wedding days, uh, things like that, for instance. And this is kind of David getting to do that, right? He's writing this psalm to be sang in something that he wouldn't get to personally experience. And it didn't indeed happen until after he had died, so that's kind of neat. But there is something very interesting to think about here in uh, Psalm 30, and that is this inscription. Because in the Hebrew language, these headings 
appear between the individual psalms. So the heading here is actually between Psalm 29 and Psalm 30. Um, and some scholars have suggested that the information is actually supposed to go with the psalm that just ended rather than the one coming. So every once in a while your mind just gets blown a little bit and you think, I've never thought about that before. Um, in that case, the heading here would have been the, what do you call it, at the end of, a, <laughs> end of something, a, a postscript for the psalm that just came. So it would relate back to Psalm 29. Now, do you remember what we talked about in Psalm 29? Look at it again, back in Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And then some of the outdoor things about, and specifically mentioning trees being broken and splintered in Lebanon by the voice of the Lord. Now, a lot of the trees for the temple actually came down from Lebanon, right? Uh, and so it's just interesting to think about. Verse 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And as we read through Psalm 30, it doesn't look much like what you'd expect at the dedication of the temple, but it could have very well been. So I don't know, but I like to think about things like that. I have not done a thorough check of the headings related to where they're at in the Psalms, but I do know the, the heading before Psalm 51 is perfect for it, isn't it? It tells us that this is what David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and his confession and repentance, and Psalm 51 is perfect for that. So I would not be able to buy the argument that these, like I say, some of these scholars have made that they're always for the psalm after rather than before. But it may be that just like you put notes on things, that some of them do relate to the one before. And here's a place where that suggestion is interesting. Any thoughts on that? Like I say, Psalm 51 has to be about uh, the psalm that comes right after the heading because it is so cool that way uh, in David's uh, psalm of repentance. It just goes perfectly along with his rebuke by the prophet and uh, his uh, confession prayer to God. Have you ever heard that suggestion before, Gary? Yeah. yeah, interesting. Here's one place where maybe, but another thing to think about as you read through and carefully study the psalms. Uh, now, Donnie, you're a song leader and stuff. Have you ever thought about that or heard anything like that? I actually have not. Okay. So, so this guy was reading this guy was reading scholars we never saw. Right? Right. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, back to our Psalm 30. It could also be that David was not thinking about the temple here, but this is a response to the messianic line that 2 Samuel 7 promised would come through David, what we call the Davidic covenant. All the kings of Judah were from the quote-unquote house of David as well as the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And 2 Samuel 7 does use the language, uh, you will establish my house, you know, the house of David. And so perhaps it's related to some of those things. And in that case, victory over enemies would uh, go right along with that. So let's get into it. In verses 1 through 3, David testifies of God's various deliverances. So look again at verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. So we're reminded here that David had many foes, many people who did not like him and wished him harm. So because we uh, have looked at the life of David and we started with, you know, David beating Goliath, you know, we look on and say, oh man, he's a hero. Didn't everybody think of him as a hero, you know? Uh, and no, when you read through his life, you see many formidable things 
uh, to deal with. There were many people who did not like him and wished him harm. There were enemies from other nations like Goliath uh, and enemies from within Israel. Some of them were just jealous of him like King Saul. Others of, uh, were angry at him like his son Absalom. We know even his brothers uh, resented him coming out when he wound up getting his sling and going after Goliath, you know. Uh, you know and so he felt some of those childhood sibling rivalry resentments kind of thing, uh, and they felt them toward him. God brought David through many scraps with the giants of the world. Look at verse 2. He says, O oh my Lord, Lord my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. Yahweh my Elohim, I cried out to you, and you healed me. So, Lord, I've been through some battles. I've had some foes, but you've lifted me up, and you haven't let my foes rejoice over me. Uh, and, um, you know, it's interesting how many different ways we see God do that. The victory over Goliath, uh, he records even before that, victories over lions and bears that want to do sheep harm, uh, how uh, he was able to not be hit by the spear. I mean, one of those spears from Saul hits him, uh, and that had been it, right? Um, he uh, was sent out by Saul, Saul trying to kill him, sent him out to bring back, bring me back a hundred Philistine foreskins, or you can't have my daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, and then he winds up bringing 200 back, right? Well, he? that's 200 people he fought and prevailed over right there. Uh, of course, um, all the battles that it speaks of, uh, the time that Saul was after, the time he feigned insanity before a king who could have done him harm, uh, and all kinds of different things along the way, including with his own son, Absalom. He says, Lord, I cried out to you and you healed me. Verse three, O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You've kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So the word, if you notice, there's two different words there uh, that we relate to at what happens after death. The word for grave is Sheol, which occurs 64 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. The word for pit, I think I was mistaken on this when I read it a little bit ago, so sorry about that. Sheol would be the first one. You brought my soul up from Sheol. The second one, you've kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. The word for pit is bore, which occurs 61 times. And so Sheol means grave, and also the place of the departed dead, where they went before Christ's resurrection. All, it looks like all people went there. Those that were righteous, unrighteous, all went to this holding tank for the dead. Uh, we love what Jesus taught us in the rich man and Lazarus. What did he teach us about um, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? Uh, Sheol is not just where, or in the Greek it would be called Hades. It's not just where the dead are, but at least before the cross, even though they all were there, something was already true there, a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. What was it? There was a gulf between the two. The righteous were already being comforted. They were in Abraham's bosom receiving comfort. The unrighteous were um, already experiencing torment, not the final torment, but already some kind of torment. There was a gulf between them. Uh, what else? The uh, unrighteous had a memory. Yeah. There's memory there. So sometimes people think about, okay, after this life, your mind will be wiped, but it looks like there's memory things going both ways, right? Um, which is very interesting. Uh, you know, for some people, they say, well, it wouldn't be heaven if you knew about bad things happening. Uh, and, um, you know, heaven is not the 
absence of knowledge is the presence of perspective. You know, so we come into other passages that where it looks like saints in heaven know what's going on, intercede to some level about it. Um, I don't know if that means they get to see everything. It might be there's a portal situation, and as Jesus intercedes, he says, hey, look, what's going on? You know, uh, you, you folk interested in the tabernacle there in Danville, Virginia, you know, intercede in this moment, you know. So we don't pray to saints, but saints might be praying for us from heaven. Who knows? Um, but getting back to the Sheol, uh, bore, though, means pit, like the one Joseph's brothers threw him into. It's also used of the dungeon that Joseph was thrown into. Um, so now we're thinking, and I like how Donnie referred to that gulf between, uh, you know, when you think about what is wherever this place is, you know, underneath us or in some kind of dimensional realm, uh, it uh, is very interesting that uh, there are verses that speak about some of the demons being in the lowest pits, you know, the lowest area. So it looks like that there may have even been a lower compartment where, uh, for whatever reason, demons have been rounded up over the ages. We know whatever they did back in Genesis 6 ticked God off, and God rounded up a whole bunch of them and just put them down there. Revelation brings it back in some and says there will be a time where the bottomless pit will be opened and they'll be able to ascend up and cause damage on earth for what is the five months passage uh, that, where that'll happen. So um, it looks like that over time, some demons have just been confiscated and joined those down there, even though other demons are still free to roam. Uh, so it's all interesting. Uh, sometimes this word pit is also translated well or cistern. So Psalm 88.6 speaks of being in, put in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depth. And Lamentations 3.55 speaks of God calling out to God from the lowest pit. So you can see it can be used for a very frustrating situation or actually having died. So we allow in scripture reading, in the Psalms especially, for the emotions that people were feeling. And um, it's not uncommon for us to sometimes say, man, God has really brought me through hell, you know or to look at another person and see their suffering and say, that family, man, they're really experiencing hell on earth. They're not literally experiencing hell on earth. Those that don't know the Lord will experience hell one day, you know, but we use it to refer to it. And, and David might be doing that here in verse three. Lord, I, there's so many times I was as good as dead. <laughs> you know, there's so many times. And he might even be talking about some medical situations sometimes where, you know, people thought he was going to die. Uh, but he says, Lord, you brought me, my soul up from the grave, from the place of the dead. You kept me alive that I should not go down uh, to the pit. You have, you have kept me going when nothing else could. And so David is testifying in these verses of God's various uh, deliverances. Now, um, the lowest place, uh, we already said it, of Shale Hades, might be where they already uh, are under arrest, the demons there, bottomless pit of uh, fifth trump, trumpet judgment in Revelation 9. Uh, what is the word sometimes used in the Greek New Testament for this lowest pit? It starts with a T. Tartarus. You ever heard Tartarus? Um, so we get some of that as we look in um, New Testament. What about uh, abyss? Like, like, didn't uh, uh, unclean spirits say don't Make us go into the abyss. Uh, yeah, that, you're right. There's a passage, good, good, Mike. There's a passage in the Gospels 
where when Jesus heals the Gadarene demoniac uh, that had uh, enough demons in him that when it was cast into a pearl, was, you know, uh, cast into swine, they rushed down the hill and that many died, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, they're afraid of him putting them in the abyss. I would say that corresponds uh, to that language of the place demons get confined to and are there until, you know, getting out for a little time and then final judgment things, you know, where they're... Now, we know what their final destination is. Do you all remember what their final destination is? Lake of Fire. Lake of Fire. That's right. They'll be in there the Lake of Fire with all rebellious uh, uh, humans and demons that uh, never uh, turned to the Lord or departed from the Lord. Um, now, Zechariah 9.11, listen to how this verse says it. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Zechariah 9.11. So uh, that is a promise to Israel that we, of course, look back on too and think about the blood of the covenant with us through Jesus Christ. I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Uh, so it's kind of cool um, to go along with these other things. So David testifies of God's various deliverance. Any more talk y'all want to do about uh, Sheol? Uh, maybe we should take a moment or two here and talk about Silent Saturday since the passage brings it up and sometimes we talk about it. So we know very much about what Christ did on the cross on Good Friday. And we know very much about him rising from the dead on Resurrection Sunday, sometimes called Easter. Um, and then there was a Saturday between them. We know Jesus told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we know that early Christians uh, formulated the Apostle Creed, Apostles' Creed that says what? He descended into hell. And some modern denominations have said, you know what? I, we don't know if, if we fully agree with that happening, and so they, they're reluctant to say that Jesus descended into hell. And that's taken from Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter, uh, verses in First and Second Peter, um, where the thought is that Jesus, between his death and his resurrection, actually went to this Sheol, and I believe the scriptural evidence, you know, that I believe this is what happened. We know for believers now, they don't go into a soul sleep or they don't have their soul put in shale awaiting the finality of it all, um, the final judgment. What they do is to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. So David and some Old Testament saints said, man, it looks like shale's coming, the place of the dead, even though we're righteous, you know. Uh, but they also look forward, and we're going to see this in Psalms coming up, you know, the righteous will inherit the earth. The wicked won't. They'll be cut off, but the righteous will inherit the earth. So Old Testament saints seem to be looking forward to the final reality of life on a redeemed earth with their Redeemer forever, uh, just like Revelation 20, 21, and 22 lays out. So uh, our, who, who's in shale now? Are the believers there? Well, we think not. We think that believers now of all time, are with the Lord in heaven, and they get added to every time the next saint dies. So it looks like Jesus says, we read about, um, help me find the passage in uh, Peter where that uh, happens. Ephesians 4 talks about him leading captivity captive, and so we try to figure that verse into it. But um, 
since I didn't write this in the notes in advance, you're going to have to help me find the Is passage. It, uh, 319? Yeah, let's see. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. First Peter 3, verse 18, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, to whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And it goes on from there, including it talking about baptisms, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience from God. There's a spiritual baptism that's uh, more important than the physical baptism. But um, what does it mean there when it says he went and preached to the spirits in prison? From earliest days of the faith, many saints have believed that between Friday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday, Jesus went in his spirit down to Sheol, and he stood somewhere about where that, that gulf was between the two, and he had a two-pronged message. Uh, for all those who had believed in the promises of God throughout history before that, he said, looky here, this is what you've waited for. We're just about to ascend to heaven. He led captivity captive, right? He uh, rose on high. Um, and then the message would be a twofold message for all those not only disobedient angels who were in the lower abyss, but also those who had never turned to God and his promises, those who had never believed in God's promises. You need to wait here until final judgment comes. So saints from that time on in heaven, maybe that has something to do with the graves opening a little bit and some weird things happening in Jerusalem during that time that we're told about in the Gospels. But it looks to me like, and, and there's those that disagree with this, but it looks to me like all saints of all time, now with the Lord, new ones added every time a person dies and goes to be there. Rapture generation will join them as well. And um, when it comes down to who's in Sheol now, it's not all dead spirits, but just the demonic uh, angels in the lower part that are already there. Some are still roaming the earth, doing havoc, but also the souls of those who rejected God, um, never turned to God. And Revelation 20 makes clear that there will be a time when Hades will enter out before the great white throne, along with all those that need to be judged living at that time, you know, and there'll be the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire forevermore, the final torment. Um, that makes sense? That's what I've always heard. Yeah, it wasn't the best way I've ever explained it, but we got there. Uh, and we just wanted to go over that again since the passage spoke about such things. Okay. So, Silent Saturday, not so silent, a lot happening, you know, and that's why the Apostles, you know, Creed uh, was a very good statement, you know, that he ascended into hell, uh, but uh, he's coming to rule and to reign again. Okay, so verses 4 and 5, well, the saints sing praise to our holy and gracious God. So, here we are in verse 4, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And this is really interesting because um, the word for saints there is actually a form of that awesome word kesed that I talk about all the time. It was in this morning's passage as well. Anytime you're in the Old Testament, especially the wisdom books, you see they just can't get over 
the faithful love of God, the steadfast love of God, his kased, um, referencing God's steadfast love. So that's your fill in the blank there. Um, and there are many commendable and great things about the King James and the New King James. Uh, the, when, when they come to the word kased, they really just translate it all kinds of things. So sometimes it'll be loving kindness, sometimes mercy, sometimes tender mercies. Uh, but uh, the Holman made the decision to translate it faithful love every time. This English Standard Version we're using on Sunday mornings, um, it translates it steadfast love every time. And I think that conveys that you've got a very important word here in a way that giving it six or seven different uh, English words uh, does not. But isn't it interesting, Hasidic Jews are referencing this in their own desire to serve God rightly. Have you ever heard of a Hasidic Jew? A Hasidic Jew, they're basically saying, we are those who love God. We love him. You know, so they're pulling out that word said and putting it in their very name. And uh, many, uh, so, so when you hear people reverently say a name for God, uh, we, should, we should do what they do here. Let's read it again. Sing praises to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. You can tell a lot about a person by... Um, how their face appears when they hear the name Jesus, right? And uh, when somebody, I mean, just, you know, are you ever in a place? And, I, and we've all heard the cuss word version that makes us a little upset. You know, they're taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, uh, gosh, they're just really flippant with that. But I'm talking about the other situation when you're at a restaurant or something, you know, and all of a sudden you hear somebody there and, you, oh man, they're talking about Jesus back there. I love Jesus. They love Jesus. And you can't help but just listen in a little bit, right? And they talk about their testimony a little bit and forgiveness of sins and people getting back on track. And it just makes your heart delight. And David says that. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of him. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Um, so... Uh, one of the best songs we sang this past week down at Word of Life was one I had not heard before, but it was actually had, it, it, it said names, uh, and, and the song led you to consider and, and rejoice when you think of the names of God. And that never gets old, does it, when you think about, what are, what are some of the different things Jesus is called uh, in the Bible? Yeshua. Yeshua, so uh, kind of the Joshua, Yeshua, God saves is in there, yep. Uh, light of the world. What are some other things? Good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Oh, yeah. Well, you can just go on and on from John, but what are some others? Let's just, just popcorn them out there. The bread of life. The bread of life, yeah. He who eats of this bread will hunger no more. What did you say? Redeemer. Oh, the Redeemer, yeah. That's a good one, and, and pregnant with meaning. In Hebrew, the word was goel, the kinsman redeemer, uh, as Boaz was for Ruth. And Jesus is that for us. He's the kinsman who, because he's of our blood, can buy us back and get us back on track. Uh, and so that's in that language. I heard a, uh, heard a chapel at Bryan one time, and the guy was making the case that the concept of him being that kinsman redeemer is the most important one in the Old Testament. I didn't quite buy it, but it's pretty, pretty, pretty good stuff to add to the how great Jesus is mix. What are some others? The Word. The Word, yeah. That's a pretty bold one right there, just the Word. Yeah, he speaks and it happens. Creation happens. Uh, forgiveness happens. Uh, 
declared righteous happens uh, for those unworthy sinners who don't have any claim on righteousness of their own. They're just trusting in his. That's awesome. Uh, what he speaks over us, he's the word. What else? Uh, adding in for the Holy Spirit, he's called the spirit of grace. So we love grace and he's the spirit of grace. For the Father, we read that he is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And so this is something good to do just every now and then because we just started. And as we kept going, everybody in here would have one and keep putting them out there and that sort of thing. Hundreds of names of God and other things that if it's not a title, it at least conveys that way when we think about it. So he's the author and finisher of our faith. He starts the thing, he ends the thing. He's got a purpose and plan. Um, the kids, of course, had their night down there at camp where they were presented the idea of purity, you know, and fighting for their purity. And they went to that First Thessalonians 4 passage that so, is so good. And in First Thessalonians 4, it says, if we don't take that seriously and we defraud others, you know, a guy trying to lie to girls and sleep to them or whatever, and they're losing that gift they could give to their husband one day. Uh, in First Thessalonians 4, God is called the avenger. The avenger in that case. You know, we think of avenger as a superhero, Marvel Comics or whatever, but the Bible says God can turn into avenger for those that are stealing the future from uh, young maidens or whatever, or uh, young gentlemen if it's a lady in reverse doing it, you know. Um, any other one just on the tip of your tongue you want to throw out there? Verse 4 goes along good with it. Sing praise to the Lord. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. But he's got a specific purpose here when he adds it in verse 5. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Um, that verse grows on you, doesn't it? <laughs> that verse grows on you. Now, there's lots of psalms. There's 150 psalms. The medium psalm, I think, was nine verses that we said, or was it 11 verses, somewhere in there. So, But that's at least 1,500 verses in the psalms when you add in the longer ones like Psalm uh, 119, really kicking the number up. There might be close to 2,000 verses in the psalms. We, I could have looked that up and didn't before today. But um, So I was thinking about this. If I had to make a top 100 list of the verses in the psalms, I think that one would be in there. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Now, who's got the uh, King James here? Anybody here have the King James? Go ahead and uh, one of y'all read verse 5 in the King James. Okay, so pretty close. Anybody have another translation? I had the New King James when I read it, but the King James is pretty close there. It's another one of those where you get this concept of momentary anger, uh, long-lasting favor. When you think about God, when he has to express wrath uh, to those that are his, uh, like a parent, you know, a parent can be upset about something and have to deal with something, but man, they love that little boy, they love that little girl, and uh, they're going to try to even discipline, even express their displeasure in the context of 
wanting relationship and uh, for you to make the right decisions and that sort of thing. And so what a beautiful verse. Momentary anger, lifelong favor. Weeping may endure for a night. Joy comes in the morning. Um, anybody have a testimony of this verse? Uh, meeting them in a time of uh, sorrow? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We all deal with some very hard things in life. And there are times that uh, we're just so stricken with sorrow. We just don't think, you know, we don't think uh, tomorrow's going to happen. It can't go on, you know. And um, I think there are some sorrows that we experience that uh, are going to be part of us and with us for the rest of our life, you know, uh, the rest of our earthly life. Um, uh, the loss of a loved one, you know, the, uh, the uh, you know, we talk about this lady that's in the hospital and her sister-in-law was killed in the same car she was in, you know. And uh, that's going to be part of her story the rest of her life. And there's a lot of sorrow there. And, and the Lord has a way of comforting us. And it's not that we're ever glad anything happened. Um, and I think if some of us were asked about some things in life, could we go back? Could we change it so they'd still be here? Most of us say, yeah. <laughs> um and yet uh, the Lord is very gracious to us in meeting us during those moments of intense grief and hardship and sorrow and uh, still having our joy so centered in Him that uh, morning comes, morning comes. And just when you think you can't go on, you can, even though you've got this sadness as part of your story. Uh, and he's so good that way. I, I, hey, listen, you know, that's how I feel all the time. People consider me in general a pretty joyful person. But when you look at Luke 16, what does that look like for the prodigal's father? You know, I, I think if you'd seen the father, you would have seen two things at once as you were around his farm. I think you would have seen um, a, a man that loved the Lord uh, because that conveys in the story. I think some of the people would even... Um, have said he's a very joyful man. He's filled with the joy of the Lord and the presence of the Lord and the love of the Lord. But I think they also would say, there's a man carrying a deep sadness, you know. And uh, David is, what a beautiful psalm here. Weeping may come for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Some things are just going to tear us up and rip us up. And there's no saying, get over it in the moment or in the next days and weeks and months that follow. But the child of God, who God still has a purpose and plan for down here, you know, even as they carry these sorrows, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say in not so articulate a way, because I guess I'm tired from the trip and stuff, is Ron Dunn one time gave the most remarkable quote uh, in his, uh, he was a great evangelist. I don't know, anybody, did anybody here ever get to hear Ron Dunn speak? Ron Dunn was a great Southern Baptist evangelist and traveled around and spoke in a lot of different places. He said, good and evil run on parallel tracks and usually arrive at the same time. And uh, with the Lord, it is possible to both be carrying a burden and going forward in love and joy uh, to the ones. And even as I pray for my boys uh, to encounter somebody and get right with the Lord, you know, I try to do that for other, others along the way. And so before I came here, I took a phone call from a distraught young man I've told you about him before. He's in his 30s now, has not turned to the Lord yet. And I've become just a, another older brother or father figure to him or whatever and stuff like that. And, 
you know, he says, Danny, I, I want to believe, but I don't quite believe. And I'll tell him a little bit more and answer questions and pray for him and stuff like that. But, you know, um, uh, you know, I take that call because I don't want him to ever not have anybody to call. And part of my hopes there is that when my son's moment comes, somebody will take the call, you know. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes uh, in God's economy, while you're helping somebody else's kid who's far away, somebody else is helping yours, you know. So David then goes in in verses 6 through 10 to a time he begged God to extend his life. Uh, so this is very interesting. In verse 6, <laughs> this is, <laughs> you got to love the honesty, right? He's talking about a time in the past. Look what he says. Now, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. I got it made now. I've come so far, you know. I got such a great track record. I've got such esteem by people I know and minister to and lead as king. Uh, I shall never be moved. And I have to just say, uh-oh, when you hear a statement like that, right? When we make a statement like that, we often have something happen to move us and drive us back to our knees, right? And that's certainly what David's going to testify to here, a uh, time he begged God to extend his life. So whatever, this, this seems like when he was king and things were going well, in my prosperity, as things were going best, I said, I got it made. Nothing can happen to me now. I shall not be moved. And what's really frustrating, you guys, is so many people I minister to, I don't know, do y'all have this uh, for your friends and family members? What is the elusive reality many Americans are seeking for, and many people just in general? They're seeking to come to a moment where they have organized everything in such a way that from now on, they're not going to have any problems. I see it in people say. I'm going to put this roof on. It's the last roof I'll ever put <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're getting the house ready for the latter years. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And they say, this is the last time I'll have to do this. I'll never have to do this again. Mm -hmm. And and David's kind of, I mean, David's probably thinking, right? You can almost see him as he, as, he, as he moves through this little progression here. There was a time where I made the mistake of thinking, okay, I've arrived. And this is... This happens in all, all kinds of areas, right? I mean, uh, the uh, restaurant, you know, fast food chain or whatever, they think, okay, we've done it right now, and, and it, it's just going to go great from here. We're only going to be expanding, never retracting. It, it, it's, it's just going to go great. I'm sure anybody that's built something up like Donnie has with a band, you know, thinks, okay, we've arrived. There's a certain amount of thing you expect when you hear about this band coming to town and stuff. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, or a great sports team or whatever, you know, uh, you just think, okay, you know, but, you know, every new season, every new season, you got to be ready for new challenges. You know, you got to replace certain uh, members or the sports team players. Mike? My, my translation, NIV says, yep. when, when I felt, F-E-L-T, when I felt secure, <laughs> I said, I will never be shaken. I was just wondering. Yeah. If he was depending on his feelings, mm -hmm. whereas we know David was a man of faith, but uh, that can get you in trouble. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know there is no such place. I think Solomon's trying to communicate to us this in Ecclesiastes. You know, that there's not going to be a place, but but I think you guys see it too. Y'all talk to people, right? I mean, family members and friends and neighbors and and how many people that we know 
aren't taking the devastating effects of sin in general and sin in particular in our own lives, other lives and stuff like that, being in the world, and we let our guard down a little bit, and what we're working for is a day that we won't have to really have the same kind of troubles we've been through so many times before. And I think David, who had had his life had been a struggle, you know, he's thinking, okay, I'm the king now. <laughs> you know, I'm winning victories. We've expanded the borders. Um, from now on, it's forward, not back, you know. And he's in that kind of... So, so what can creep in in moments like that? Pride, self-reliance, rather dependence on God. And God just won't have it. He loves us too much to let us uh, accept less than him for where our satisfaction comes from. And so we, let's go down to the verses here. Verse 7. Lord, by your favor, you've made my mountain stand strong. <laughs> so that's where he was at. You made my mountain stand strong, but you hid your face from me, and I was troubled. So do you catch what happens here? When David prospered, he got proud and thought he could never be moved. He had forgotten that it was God's favor. Um, and the word for favor is rason, his pleasure, his delight, his favor, his goodwill. It was God's pleasure that David had prospered. But when he took his eyes off God, like when we take our eyes off Jesus and put them on himself, God played some hide-and-seek with David, and David instantly felt troubled. So God looks down, and David's getting proud and self-reliant, and God just hides behind something for a little bit, and David feels, wait, so what's, what's you know, where's God? And the same thing can happen to us as individuals. It can happen to us as a church. I had an elder back in uh, Waynesboro. He used to talk about how, you know, sometimes God just puts people in the penalty box for a few minutes, you know. Uh, they just get a little proud, a little uh, too up on themselves, and uh, you know they, uh, they 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 don't remember humility and trusting God and stuff. And sometimes then they do something silly or stupid or whatever, and God just takes them, puts them in the penalty box, and lets them watch the game for a little bit before they get back out there. You know, and He has a wide variety of things He can do. It can be a little medical condition, you know, or uh, you know just uh, something you should. On paper, you were the team that should have won. But uh, you thought, I got this, didn't practice as much or whatever, you know, and you, uh, you know, took your eyes off the ball and fumbled it, you know, things like that. I can think of many situations where um, that I've seen that happen. Um, so we don't want to touch the glory uh, when uh, things are going the way that we hoped they would and um, God is blessing. We want to be very careful to give him the glory. And, but also be realistic that it may be a season. Um, I've, I've always admired the great evangelist George Whitfield, um, who preached the Great Awakening, uh, one of the Great Awakenings. And, uh, you know, I think most of that awakening activity, the huge numbers, came when George Whitfield was a younger man. And I can't imagine seeing so many converted so often, you know, and then having less of that happen, you know. Uh, but um, it's not uncommon for people who have been somewhere and seen uh, a huge move of God happen to later on have remarkably fewer numbers or whatever. And uh, George Whitfield advised some younger ministers like this, and so, some, so did some of the Welsh pastors who, around 1905, I think, had just a huge move of God in uh, Wales. And one minister 20, 30 years later was lamenting that he just wasn't seeing anything like that again. And another minister uh, told him, he said, look, he said, we've been privileged to see what some people never see in a lifetime. I mean, we saw the hand of God move. 
but you're still doing the same things you did there. You're being faithful in the word, you're praying, and now there's handfuls rather than hundreds, you know. And he said, but realize God's sovereignty over such things. So when you're in the middle of a moment where God's on the move, enjoy it, but don't think this is what ministry or life is always going to be like uh, so that you don't give up when those moments aren't like that, you know, because it's always important to the next one we reach for the Lord. So David said, listen, I, in my prosperity, I said I shall never be moved. God hid from me a little bit. I felt the vacuum. I felt the need. And I, uh, verse 8, he says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What word is within the word supplication that comes in English? Supply, do you see it there? Somebody said it, yeah, supply. We're asking God to supply our needs and the needs of others. We pray for using all the resources he has to supply those needs. And I love testimonies, you do do too. I love testimonies of how God provides for people, uh, how uh, he meets needs um, through a job offer or a better package at a workplace or all the different ways he can do that through the kindness of family members, friends, and churches, through an unexpected tax return or the kindness of someone in the community. But I love um, when we cry out to the Lord, he makes supplication. And then in verse 9, he takes a turn. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? So will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? And we sometimes think of our Jewish friends and some of the characterizations of uh, Jewish moms and dads and bargaining, you know, we think of Tevler and Tev, uh, well, Tevye, Tevla. Tevye. <laughs> Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, I was thinking Tesla like the car. Yeah. Thank you. Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof, you know, and there he is, is on the one hand and on the other hand, you know. And we see some of that robust Jewish prayer life in verse 9. God, you know, I'm the king of Israel. What profit would there be in my blood? When I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you will declare your truth? What good it would be for you to lose me in this life, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's a classic of, version of the for your namesake prayer. God seems to like it when we express our desire to live and praise him and make a difference for him. He likes it when we care enough to remind him of his promises. And I just grew up thinking about things a little different than that, and many of you did too. We think it presumptuous to remind God of anything. I mean, we saw a passage this morning saying, be careful, be careful when you go to the house of the Lord where God is, you know, let your words be few, don't speak things rashly with your mouth. That's on the one hand, like Tevye said, but on the other hand, we've got many of the Psalms that teach us that God somehow delights when his people, and you see this, if you look at the great prayers of the Old Testament especially, what do you see? You see Moses saying, yeah, God, you could kill them all. They're a sorry bunch. But what would the heathen say? What would the heathen say? Oh, oh, by the way, God, you made a promise. (laughs) You made a promise. Uh, And, you know, many times in the Old Testament, what you see is when God's people aren't praying, they're kind of in a spiritual stupor and don't remind God of his promises. God reminds himself of his promises. He says, yeah, I should be done with you all right now. You know, you're in sin against me. You're turning to idols and things. And I'm going to have to discipline that. But I made a promise to Abraham that I'm going to keep even if this generation doesn't deserve it, right? And, you know, so when we think about extending that over into the new covenant days we're in now, uh, I think some of that's still how we're supposed to pray. You know, we're supposed to, uh, Lord, (laughs) yeah, I've blown it. I've blown it. And, uh I make myself sick sometimes, 
But Lord, you meant it, didn't you? When, when you said that you were the author and finisher of my faith. Lord, that tells me you're not done with me yet, you know. So even though I've blown it, would you please forgive me? <laughs> you know, would you please get this sorry sinner back on track? I'm confessing to you. Will you be faithful and just like you said you would? I'm not faithful. I'm not just, Lord. But you said you would because of your promise to yourself. I'm cashing in, Lord. I need it. That's the, my only hope. You know, when we throw ourselves on the mercy of the court, I think he loves it. And David does that here. Uh, you know, uh, what profit is there in my blood? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? And again, sometimes we think this kind of prayer is presumptuous, um, but uh, we see it modeled throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite examples is in the big wrestling match, the big wrestling match between Jacob and God, right? What did Jacob say to God? I won't let you go till you bless me. And I don't understand how it all works, but God wants to be sought like that. You know, he wants to be uh, wrestled with like that, you know. And if he thinks it'll help us in the midst of that, he'll break our hips so we walk with a limp the rest of our life. And Jacob was the best Jacob in the days after that limp, if you look at the context. Because um, he met with God. God had uh, wrestled him. And uh, it was a good thing. When you think about it, only a person who really loves God cares enough to wrestle with God like that in prayer. Um, we've all met lots of people and sometimes been that person ourselves where we've been like, yeah, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. God may do it, he may not. Uh, it'd be presumptuous to ask, so I won't ask. Um, let's uh, turn to Isaiah for a second. The great prophecy of the virgin birth, Isaiah chapter 7. Y'all know that Ahaz was a wicked king, right? Uh, he was a wicked king. And uh, so God came to him, and Ahaz was relying on alliances uh, with pagan neighbors to help him get through in a difficult time for Israel. In verse 10, it says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. <laughs> Hey, Ahaz, ask for whatever you want. The prophet tells Ahaz, God is saying to you through me, ask for whatever you want. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Did he say that because he loved the Lord? No, he didn't want anything to do with the Lord. He said, I've already got it taken care of, God. I've gone to the kings around us to help us out of this mess. Verse 13, then the prophet said, Hear now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? What's that mean? Isaiah the prophet was saying to Ahaz the king, God's the one asking you to ask. God's the one saying, Come to me, all you heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Or whatever, thing you want, whatever, whatever word of God you want to put in there. And Ahaz is like, I can't be bothered with that. And I don't want to bother God. So he's saying, I don't want to be presumptuous to God. But what he really didn't want to do is he didn't want anything to do with God. And some people say, well, I would never, you know, we need, we need to pray about this. No, you know, God's got better things to do than worry about what I got going on. You hear things like that. So it's not the sign of a spiritual person saying, you know, kind of a que sera, sera attitude. 
who's not really dependent on the Lord. When God says ask, we ought to ask, right? Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God, God's with us. Ahaz, you're missing it in your generation. Because you could care less about the things of God, and you're kind of going through the motions, even though you're king of God's great nation, Israel, uh, you know, you're going to miss it. But the people of God throughout time and space aren't going to miss it. I'm going to send Jesus one day. I'm going to send God with us one day. I just think that's an awesome example of the difference between a Jacob who says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me, and really does take the time to pray and to uh, you know, intercede. And David here is doing it in Psalm 30 as he does in many of the Psalms. Lord, um, what good would it be? So help me, help me. Verse 10, hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me, Lord, be my helper. And God was David's helper. He preserved his life, and David is thankful. So he remembers that time. And then the last little section here, verses 11 and 12, David praises God and gives him thanks. So again, another great verse in the Psalm. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've put off my sackcloth and clothed, clothed me with gladness. And uh, don't you just love the imagery there? Taking off the funeral suit, putting on party clothes. <laughs> I think we've all been there. We'll be there again. But he says, you have turned my mourning into dancing, Lord. Uh, I thought it was just time of grief and that's all there ever be. But I cried out to you. You've heard, you've delivered. And all of a sudden, it, it, I've got some things I'm frankly excited about again. Uh, even though there was that other grief. Um, and then verse 12, to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and be not silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So just one thing to emphasize here before we're done. If I read Psalms correctly, it shows us that the greatest expressive praise in the Bible is often shown by those who have personally experienced God's hand on their lives through the hardest things of life. In other words, some of the most expressive praise should come from tested and maturing, there's your word, maturing saints. It should not merely be the domain of young people who haven't experienced life yet. So we oftentimes, uh, and I, you know, I know that there's a line that you cross and you're just showy and stupid and stuff like that, and we want to avoid being like Pentecostals and, you know, who seem to be just, uh, it's all about having the, the next showy display of emotion and that's not the heart of all Pentecostal brothers of course and stuff like that but they're known for excesses and we want to be very careful not to have crazy going on and stuff like that but um, you know I just finished camp down with the youth and you know they get that hard rocking music going and stuff and they're dancing and jumping up and down and things like that you know and they're excited about their faith they're in a safe place uh, where they're not surrounded by the mockers that there are at school and that sort of thing. And so they, they get into it, and it's fun to be around, you know. Uh, and then, of course, even though tired, they drive back, and sometimes we're afraid to show any expressive emotion in church. Uh, and um, I just want to believe that David, when you see him here in the Psalms, he was an expressive man. Uh, who called for expression in praise and worship, and there was excitement there, and that's okay. And so I believe some of the most expressive praise should come from tested and maturing saints, and uh, I think it will mean a lot to younger folks when they see that. Look at Grandma, you know, with that expression of joy on her face, you know. Um, I can tell you whenever you're in front, when people are singing, you can see 
people without being showy, without being over the top. You can see people that really are in that moment just loving the Lord and expressing their faith in Him in song. And uh, sometimes you can see their uh, family members, a son or a grandson or whatever, watching them and thinking, you know, I'm glad Granddad's not just bored out of his mind here. You know, he loves the Lord and it shows when they, he hears the name of Jesus and uh, then gets to sing those songs uh, that bring that out. So next week, Psalm 32. If you can come Wednesday night, we'll have a prayer meeting and a time in the book of Hebrews. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.